If you don't have the sermon notes yet, they were at the back door. The usher's going to move through the auditorium. They'll hand that to you while we take our Bibles and we head to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel as we start in chapters 1 and 2. Ushers have some extra notes to just hand out. Raise your hand. They'll give that to you. The story that I was reading is about a gentleman by the name of Elliot, his wife Jerry. They came home late after a church function. When they got home, there was a stormy night. They got to bed and it was about midnight, about an hour after they got home. All of a sudden there was a thunderbolt of lightning that struck their the telephone pole, the utility pole right outside their home, and it sent the electrical current right into their house through the wires and exploded their TV and flames started to burst out. Elliot, as the story goes, and he wrote about it, he said he smelled the smoke at the other end of the house and he got up immediately and he's thinking about, we've got to get our family out of here. And he goes on and tells the story. He says, I hurried to the den where I discovered one of the walls was already on fire. In 30 seconds it took to, to call the fire department, my path to the front door was cut off by the flames. I I couldn't go out the front to where Jerry had taken the kids. The house was almost fully engulfed in this fire, and I didn't realize it, though, but I was already in a state of shock. I escaped out the back, but my feet were already severely burned by the smoldering carpet, and, it, and I never felt the burns until I left the house. His wife, in the meantime, is out front. She's wondering if he's entrapped inside. She's concerned. He finally joins his wife at the front of the house, and then he says this comment. He says, that's when I seem to hear the Spirit challenging my heart. As if he was saying to me, it's when he said, I, I heard in my heart this thought, I'm trying to get your attention. This is me intervening, and you need to turn to me and make some changes in the direction of your life. Now, it doesn't make sense. Why would God do that until we read a little bit more of the story? Elliot saw this as a wake-up call from the Lord. For weeks he had been thinking through some sermons that talked about life's priorities and the importance of family investment. But there was just so many things to get done, he still hadn't taken time to address adjusting his time to spend more with his family. But the weeks after the fire, he finally made some major changes. He renewed his relationship with the Lord. He began working fewer hours and came to the realization that true wealth was his family. He wrote and said, My advice to other fathers is not wait until the Lord hits you over the head with a baseball bat, but make the necessary changes in your life now. Now, that's not the norm that the Lord normally speaks. The Lord usually speaks to us through His Word and through the Word of God, and He warns us. And this evening, I want to be that mouthpiece to say, Hey, moms, dads. Dads especially, take heart to what this text is talking about, how we need to address the issues of paying attention and working on our home. We're in 1 Samuel chapters 1 and 2. We talked about it this morning, that in this chapter, that he's, what he's talking about is a lot of different information about two families. Two families that basically went in totally different directions in raising their kids. And the one family is Elkanah and Hannah, who raised Samuel, who made a tremendous impact. The other family is Eli and Mrs. Eli, who we never read about, but she obviously had to be there, and how they, he, he is the high priest, they raised their boys, but their boys became just a terrible, terrible testimony for the Lord. We made this observation, this contrast chart, how those both the young men, Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas and Samuel, they grew up they were involved in the temple, the tabernacle, the worship center. They were Jewish in background. They had assignments even to be involved in the religious activity. They were, as they grow into their teen years, they have these, these uh, projects that they can be working on and then eventually become, as adults, the priest, the prophet, the involved. But then the contrast stopped. The uh, comparison, the, the equality, and they became just totally contradictions of one another, corrupt and yet committed to God. One was 
rejected by the people, one received by the people as we pointed out this morning. One is turning people on to the Lord. The, others are, the other is turning people off to the Lord. That God rejects the brothers, but God receives and uses Samuel in a tremendous way. And we made these observations this morning. We'd say that based on the, the facts of what we read in chapters 1 and 2, it's the family or more importantly, it's the parents that made the big difference. Moms and dads in these two chapters are one that they are really, really committed Christians, not just, not just go to church Christians, but real committed Christians. And the other is, this is my job. And as my job, I'm going to be the preacher, and yet I'm really not committed. And he's the typical clergyman who has the job and the, the position, but he himself is not leading his boys in the right direction. And we said that you and I have a choice here, okay? We have a choice of really paying attention to our kids' spiritual needs and challenging and encourage them or not. And the reasons that you and I should be focusing on it were the five that I gave you this morning, that our spiritual ancestry is no guarantee of ongoing blessings. It depends upon what we do with our walk with the Lord, not what our parents did, but what we do. We said, number two, it was this, that the kids are responsible for their own choices. I understand that. I know that I can only do so much with my kids. They would have to make the choice themselves to get saved or to follow the Lord. But I am going to be held accountable for what influence I gave in trying to direct them one way or the other. How I laid out a path for them, just the same as what happened with Eli, as we'll see this evening, how he is chastened not for his son's deeds. They're going to answer for their own deeds, and they do. But he is going to be held accountable for how he led his boys. Number three, we made this observation. That our opportunities to serve God can be lost. Depending upon how we raise our kids. That happens even in modern day churches. Preachers, deacons. Those individuals who are, who are having the opportunity to lead. A real important factor is how are they leading in their homes. And that was even back in Bible days. Number four, you can lose your kids. What greater tragedy than to lose your own kids? That they don't want to serve the Lord. Now, I understand again that they may have a choice. They do have a choice. And you may have put the right influences in front of them. You may have invested and then they chose to go astray. We understand that that's a possibility. And that does happen. We understand that biblically. But the goal is to, for you and I to stay and stop and look and say, but am I giving them, when I have opportunity, am I doing the right before them? And that's the challenge that we have. And the story as we unfolded it, and especially as we think about missions and we think about moving forward and growing and trying to see others get saved, the issue is what we do with our kids could be a real way of witnessing and, and impacting our community or turning off people to the gospel. So it's very important. What we do as a family, what we do as individuals is important. And so we made those whys. What I want to focus on and continue on tonight is the what we should do. This morning we talked about the attempt, the positive. What do you want to be doing? And we talked about real commitment. And again, I remind you, the Elkanah, the Hannah story, they dedicated their child. They followed through. They did that. That may not be the same dedication. And it was rare then. And so that dedication for us today, we're not necessarily going to bring our kids to church and say, here, you've got them for 24-7. And I'm dedicating them. Please don't do that. Okay. That's, that, that was very unusual. But still there is commitment in other ways. 
There is following through with our word and our promises to God in so many other ways that we mentioned and alluded to this morning. We want to look at the negatives this evening, what to avoid. And it comes from the story of Hophni and Phinehas, and let's catch up with them, and let's remind ourselves exactly what their story is. And God tells and makes a couple comments as he goes through, and he says, you know, the priests were corrupt. He especially talks about it in chapter 2, jump down to verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were sons of Belial, that is, they were wicked men. And he goes on, he says, they knew not the Lord, they're not believers. And the priest's custom was that with the people was that when men offered the sacrifice, the priest's servant came, that is, Hophni and Phinehas, their servant themselves, while the flesh was in seething, that is, in cooking, with a flesh hook of three teeth in his hand, he stuck it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, and all that the flesh hook brought up, the priest took for himself, so they did in Shiloh unto all the Israelites that came thither to worship. Also before they burnt the fat, the priest's servant would come and said to the men that sacrificed, Give flesh to roast for the priest, for he will not have sodden or the uh, uncooked flesh of thee, but raw. And he says unto him, Let them not fail to burn the fat presently, and then take as much as your soul desires. But the priest leader, the priest servants would say, uh, answer him, say, No, but you shall give it to me now, and if not, I will take it by force. Wherefore, the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, and men abhorred the offering. Now, there is so much culture in here and practice that it kind of goes over our head. Let's just highlight a few of these thoughts, okay? Now, the passage says their sin is very great before the Lord. These guys did tremendous evil. The evil was this, that, not, that they had turned so many people against the Lord that uh, what happens is these unbelieving preachers, unbelieving priests, were actively involved in the temple worship. And when people would come, they would do their duties to a degree they would do them right, but to a greater degree they'd do them wrong. And what that wrong involved was this, is as the people came, they were told in the book of Leviticus that when people bring an offering, you can get a portion of the offering. That was true. And they wanted a portion. That's because Leviticus said you can have a portion. In Leviticus 7, if you turn there and look, it's very clear that it says, okay, when you bring an offering, they can have, say, you know, of the bird, they get the breast and they get the upper thigh. Or of the animal, they can have that. That's the priest portion. That's how they're going to live. You're going to give them just that portion. And so it's very clear that this is, it's called a heave offering in the book of Leviticus. The word heave offering, just the Hebrew word means a contribution to them, a gift to them. It's their honorarium for their work. And so that's what was decided by God back in the, the book of Leviticus. This is what the priests get. Now what happens in this story, as we already read, is the sons, Hophni and Phinehas, and their servants that they were training, they would go in and they would stick that tongs inside and any of the meat that they got, it was theirs. They were taking portions that they weren't supposed to take. They were getting more than what they were supposed to be taking. In fact, later on, God is going to say, you made yourselves fat because of how much you took. So they were taking not, not just what was limited there, what was assigned them, but much more. Then it says in this text that they wouldn't wait until it was fully boiled, fully sodden, you know, cooked. They wanted it before that time. They wanted to take it right away. Now, according to Leviticus chapter 7, verse 34, they were to make a wave offering. Now, we don't know exactly what that was. One of the, one of, uh, I shouldn't say one, several of the Jewish uh, priests that describe and write their own commentary say that what they would do is they would make a wave offering before the Lord, is they would take the meat and they would go like this and like this. 
Okay, and then make this wave offering. By the way, some of them have pointed out that it was making a certain sign that if you turn another way, you would see this sign representing the cross as a picture of Christ. I don't know how, how factual that is, but just an interesting observation. And then they would put it in the pot and it would be boiled. Well, what was happening here is the sons of Hophni and Phinehas, they were saying, we want to take our portion before it gets cooked before it gets waved before the Lord. So before it's given to the Lord, we get it as if we are more important than the Lord. Okay? We want your portion. We want you know, that, amount, that amount. Then it says, now back in Leviticus 7, this is very important. According to the Jews, they were not supposed to eat the blood. Right? It was very clear. You don't use it. I know the different cultures back then, they would mix the blood with some of the food and they would use it for cooking. And God said to the Jews, never, no, you don't do it. You don't eat, you don't cook with the blood. And that's obviously, there's health reasons, but he was very clear. In that same text, he says, I don't want you Jews to do what is very common back then. In that society, which I don't understand, but in that society, they thought the best part of the animal was the fat. I just think that's disgusting, okay? That's just not us normally. And so God said, the fat belongs to me. And he told the Jewish people, and by the way, in this portion of Leviticus, it says, tell the entire congregation, not just the priests, that you're not supposed to eat the fat. That belongs to God, because they considered it the best part of the animal. That's going to go to the Lord. Now, if you look at this text and you read what these guys did, these guys insisted that they get the fat that belongs to God, the best part. Now, I want you to receive what I've put up on the wall. According to Leviticus, it says, even he that eats the fat shall be cut off from the people. Now that's a, a phrase that shows up, I think it's 21 or 22 times in the book of Leviticus, where it talks about they shall be cut off from the people. That cutting off isn't just like the idea, okay, go to your room. What do you think it means? Yeah, you kill them. This is, a guilty, this is guilty of capital punishment by, for a priest that violates this command. Now keep that in mind. This is what's going on. This is what they're violating. Their priestly duties, they're, they're just going all over the, uh, the entire spectrum and saying, we get what is supposed to be given to God. We get the best part. We get the choice of what we want. Totally violating everything that God has said about the priests. And then it says in this text, not only do they take the stuff that's supposed to be given to God, not only do they eat the stuff that God says do not eat, but they take it by force. That we already read the text that say you better give it to us or else. These guys are the, the preachers that we hear about in this modern day where we hear about preachers taking advantage of people, forcing people. It, this, this reminds me of the preacher here in town that several years ago, to join his church, you had to give him access to your bank account. Okay. That, that type of, you know, the, uh, fleecing the flock. 
Yeah. Then on top of it, it says in this text, it says in chapter 2 a little bit further, go down to verse 22, Eli is very old, and he heard all that his sons did. Now then he adds to it, here's what else they did. How they lay with the woman who is, that assembled at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. By the way, this is exactly what Peter talks about. Peter talks about some of the signs, some of the, some of the way to know that we, you're dealing with somebody who is a false teacher is that they heap things to their flesh. They are money-oriented, get, 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 and they're very lust-oriented. That's exactly what these guys were. They wanted to make themselves fat and sassy and rich in, as far as the givings, the offerings, and they took advantage of the different peoples who came sexually. It's a terrible situation. It's an awful situation. They are, they are heathen priests in the role of the priest. And then the issue in this text is going to be, what does dad do about it? Now, the, real, the reality is in verse 17 that I pointed out this morning, it says, the men abhorred the offering of the Lord. People got sick and tired of going to the tabernacle. Well, that makes perfect sense. Wouldn't you want to stay away if you're getting ripped off when you go, when you say, listen, you can't take this portion of the fat. This belongs to God. No, 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 no. You give it to us or else. Well, that would turn you off to say, well, I'm just not going to go to the tabernacle. I'm not going to take my daughters to the tabernacle for sure, you know, because what could happen to them? And so these guys gave clergy a bad, bad name. And it was turning people off. The people, and remember, in this culture, there's not a whole lot of Jews that are going to the tabernacle. So the remnant that are even still believing in God, they have to, con- they have to contend with these guys when they go to worship. It's a horrible situation. If it's an awful situation... But that's not where God goes with it. God says, I'm going to take care of Hophni and Phinehas. They're unbelievers, they're doing these things, and I'm going to judge them. But the greater part of the text is dealing with the wrong of their dad. Dad did wrong. Dad didn't follow through. You know, he took them to the tabernacle. He taught them about God to some degree. They knew how to do worship to some degree. They were active in the thing. You know, they knew about the rituals. But dad, though he had exposed them to the word, dad, though he had employed them you know, in the temple, they were doing their, their heritage duty, dad doesn't condemn them. He doesn't stop them. In fact, there are several things stated in this text where dad made a terrible mistake, and dad is held accountable. And God soundly rebukes him for what he did not do in relationship to his sons. What were those things? What exactly did he, wrong, did he do wrong? I'm going to name them, but first I want to remind you what we read this morning. Go with me to chapter 2, verse 27, and get the whole gist of how God is so upset with him. God sends a prophet, an unnamed prophet. And he says, There came a man of God unto Eli and said, Thus saith the Lord, Did I plainly appear unto your house of your father when you were in Egypt, in Pharaoh's house? He goes on, he said, Did I not choose him out of all the tribes to be my priest? He's talking about Aaron. And Aaron's son, Eliezer. He's talking about, he's talking about Eli's great-great-grandfather, as far as we understand, or maybe a, a great-great-great-grandfather, to offer upon mine altar, to burn incense, to wear the ephod. Did I give him, give unto the house of your father all these offerings made by fire? 
Wherefore, kick you at, this is interesting, kick you at my sacrifices and at my offering, which I commanded in my habitation. You honor your sons above me to make yourselves fat with the chiefest of all the offerings of Israel, of my people. You know what's an interesting word, just for some of you who are in the, you know, the 60s kids. When he talks about, he says, you honor your sons. The word that he uses in the Hebrew is you make your sons heavy. By making yourselves heavy. He's playing on words here. Do you remember back in the 60s that there was those, those geeky phrases, you know, that were used, you know, the cool, the, uh, you know, um, I'm thinking of the Brady Bunch, you know, all those goofy phrases that they would use, swell, okay? One of them says, oh, that's heavy, man. That's really heavy. Okay, that meant it was, you know, he uses heavy here, but his heavy isn't a bad thing. He says, what you're doing is really heavy, and I don't like it. It's bad because you're making yourselves heavy. That's what it means to the word that honor. And he goes on, he says, Wherefore the Lord God of Israel said, I said indeed to your house and to the house of your father that you would walk me before me forever. But now, uh-uh, be it far from me. For them that honor me, I will honor. They that despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days come. We read this portion this morning. That I will cut off your arm. That is, you know, your extended family and the arm of your father's house that there shall not abide in an old man in the house. And you read through what we read this morning. God's going to kill Hophni and Phinehas. He warns them about it. Now, God is so upset that he sends this same message a second time. Months, years, I'm not sure what the expand is. But in chapter 3, which we'll look at more in depth next week, in verse 11, the Lord said to Samuel, this is when Samuel's a little kid and God says, Samuel, Samuel, I have a message. Give it to Eli. This is the message. Verse, chapter 3, verse 11. Behold, I will do a thing in Israel at which both the ears of everyone that hear it, their ears are going to tingle. This is going to be amazing what I'm going to do. He goes on. In that day I will perform against Eli all things which I have spoken concerning his house. When I began... I will also make an end. I'm not going to stop. For I have told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knows because his sons made themselves vile and he didn't what? He didn't restrain them not. Therefore I have sworn unto the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be purged with sacrifice nor offering forever. Isn't that interesting? You can offer all the cattle you want. You can give me all the oxen. But Eli, it's too late. You've gone too far. Tremendously challenging verse that God says, that's it, I've had it. And so the, what's, what is it that Eli did? What does God say? Eli, you knew this situation. You didn't. What do we avoid? What do we make sure we don't do? Let me give you several thoughts. One is this. He did not challenge. I'm not sure what word you want to use. He didn't stop. He didn't confront his boys when there was a fighting chance that they could turn around. Now, I understand. I understand that in, according to the Bible, it says he restrained them not. And I understand that in chapter 2, if you back up, because this is very important that we put it in its entire context. In chapter 2, after the he's been warned, in chapter 2, going down to verse 23, it says, When Eli said unto his boys, Why do you do such things? I hear of the evil dealings by all the people. My sons, it is no good report that I hear. You make God's people, the Lord's people, to transgress. And he goes on and he rebukes them. But the end, the middle of verse 25, Notwithstanding, they hearken not unto the voice of their father. Okay, because God was, God had came to a point where they hardened their heart and God, God just says, just like Pharaoh's heart, you hardened it, now I'm just going to finish the job. 
Now, he challenged the boys. And yet God says, you restrain them not. How do we put that together? Because it says, boys, stop. But it says he didn't stop them. So what's the deal here? I think this is the deal. I think that this is not the contradiction. But I think here's what it was. He had heard about this for a long time. In the Hebrew, it says in verse 23, I keep on hearing. I keep on hearing. I have heard for a long time, and I keep on hearing of the evil that you have done from all the people. So this isn't some, something that's just happened lately. This has been going on a long time. And as a result, it seems like he didn't say anything until now when he's late in life. His boys have been going this path and only in his very latter days or his latter years does he say, you need to stop. In other words, he said, too little, too late. And God is holding him accountable for that. That God says, you were an individual that basically you did the monkey thing. That is, you saw evil, but, you, but basically you didn't want to hear about it. You kind of blocked your ears. You didn't want to hear that your boys were doing as bad as what they were doing. You didn't want to see that your kids were going the path that they were going. You just you wanted to pretend it wasn't existing to the point that you were refusing to say anything. That you didn't want to contend with them. You didn't want to challenge them. And I'm going to hold you accountable. That you let the wrong go on too long, too late, and you're responsible for it. Which God says, this is what else you did wrong. Number two, you put your sons ahead of the Lord God. That's what he's told in chapter 2, verse 29, that you honor your sons above me. Now I remind you, Exodus 20 and the Ten Commandments. What does he say? You shall have... No other gods, no other individual. You shall you know, have nothing else ahead of me. But Eli did. He put his boys ahead of the Lord. How did he do that? How did he do that? Well, okay, obviously he wasn't proactive. He didn't stop them. He, he was more concerned about what they thought, how they felt, than what God felt. He, he was more inclined to make sure his boys were happy and pleased and enjoying life and ministry than what God was pleased. He was an individual that just was, okay, I'm going to let them go. I know it doesn't please the Lord, but it keeps peace in the family. He's that individual that he didn't want to take action. Maybe he's too busy trying to get revival in the land, trying to get people to follow. And he's got so much to do. It would take so much time to focus in on the boys. And he just didn't want to take the time to do it. It was just going to be too hard, too difficult. And you know, they're, they're, they're kind of obstinate and they've been kind of cocky to him. And later on, they don't want to even listen to him. And so maybe that's been going on a while. And he just said, okay, I, I, it's just, yeah, it's not worth the hassle. But he therefore put his boys ahead of the Lord. He's accused of having his boys be, become you know, more of an authority in his life, pleasing them more than God. Now, the question I ask is this. What could he have done? Now, you have to ask an honest question. These kids now are grown up. They're men. They're in charge of the tabernacle. So now they've come to their adult years. What could he have done to them as adults? Any ideas? What's that? Kick them out of the temple. Is that an option for him to do? It really was. Could he, in modern terms, we would say like they do with priests, he could be defrocked, you know, could be put out. Um, obviously, okay, they should have been removed from the priesthood. Would you, would you grant that? They should have been fired. And he's the high priest, therefore he could fire them. 
He should have fired them. He could have disciplined them for their attitude. Do you remember what Proverbs keeps on talking about? If you have a son that is mocking, that is not listening, bring him before the elders of the community and rebuke him publicly. And if they don't listen, the rebuke could even include doing what? Stoning them, okay? And he didn't do that. He didn't do that. Obviously, according to the passages we read from, that we pointed out from Luke chapter, uh, Leviticus chapter 7, just by the fact that they were eating the fat, what was the penalty? Do you remember? It was a death penalty. When you eat what God said is only for him, they should have been, and this is harsh, I understand it's harsh, okay? They should have been executed. That's what God said. He wasn't going to do it. He loved his boys more than he loved God. That's the bottom line of this. That's why God says, you put your boys in front of me. Here's something else that I think is just implied in all this. He obviously considered himself and his sons to be the exception to God's rules. Okay? By tolerating it, by letting it go on for so long. It's like, we can get away with it. I'm the high priest. It's okay for my boys to violate the word of God. He did not demonstrate to his boys a wholehearted devotion to God where he would say, I'll do whatever God says no matter what the sacrifice. By the way, contrast in the story. Yes? Yes? Do you see the contrast? Is it becoming clear? Eli would not surrender his boys to the Lord. I'm not going to give my boys to the Lord. I'm not going to do exactly what God said. Even though I've taken a vow of loyalty to God, which would cost me my boys if I do what God says. Do you see the contrast? Elkanah and Hannah made a vow to the Lord. Were they willing to sacrifice their son? Because it was a commitment to the Lord. The answer is yes. So the priest would not, would not give his boys, sacrifice his boys in a way that God would require. But there's some lay people that would. And they're the commendable people. Dad is held responsible and said, you're going to be cut off. Your family's going to be cut off from ministry. You're going to hear of the horrible experience that I will, since you didn't take your boy's life when they should have, I'm going to take it. I'm going to take your, both your boy's lives in what? Do you remember how he highlighted it? One day. One day I will discipline them because you wouldn't give me your boys. You wouldn't follow me. There's a dad who did not demonstrate total loyalty to the Lord God. Put his boys in front. Now, I, I got to stop. This is for me. Probably nobody else in this room would have to be challenged this way, but I would. To just say, wait a minute. Did I ever let my kids determine how we worshiped? Whether we're going to church or not whether we're going to do a family time of worship, whether we're going to sacrifice in some way or shape, was it the kids that dictated that or was it the Lord? I have to stop and go, wait a minute. Did I ever refuse to correct my kids in the way that God would require because I was more concerned about my kids' feelings than doing what was right before the Lord? I have to ask myself, okay, did I let my kids get away with something that displeased the Lord because I just didn't want to contend with them getting upset by some standard or something that they didn't want to do. And I asked myself, wait a minute, 
Am I one of those people that the British royalty who here a couple years back visited the United States, they're asking this royal family member, they said, hey, when you were in the United States, what impacted, what impressed you, what surprised you the most about what you saw in American culture? Without hesitancy, they made this answer, and it was very brief. How many parents obey their kids in America? Okay, challenge, okay? Do you ever have to stop and say, wait a minute, who does set the standards for our home with modesty, music? Who sets the standards for purity, what we watch on TV? Is it the Lord or is it my kids? Yeah, and if I say something, they're probably going to get upset. Do you remember Eli? Eli is held responsible because he didn't stop things that were going bad. I need to add to this, okay? This whole idea of do your kids see wholehearted devotion? Interesting. There's a Christian seminar here last year, I think it was, or maybe it was 2016, and they had over a thousand men at this Christian seminar. And they asked the men this question. They said, how many of you, okay, how many of you is, you know, what what do you do with your Bible reading, your Bible exposure? How many days of the week do you personally interact with your Bible, you and God time? How many of you do that during the week besides Sunday? You know, how many days of the week? This is devotion. This is you know, walking with the Lord, talking with the Lord, reading God's word. 50% said not, no other day but Sunday. Sunday. There's no other time in the week that I open my Bible. Quite a few of them in this survey said my Bible's kept under the front seat of the car. No interaction with the Bible. 45% there's one other day of the week. Do you know what the staggering number is? Only 5% of the men, Christian men at a Christian conference said that they interact with their Bible more than three days a week. Wow is right. Wow, is, that's a scary thought. Do your kids see a devotion to God that you are reading and getting into the Word? Do they see it? A wholehearted devotion. There's something in this story that I've not alluded to, but it is really potent in this text. And it shows up in chapter 2. We already read it, and it's a line that just kind of, you gloss in and and gloss over it, and you don't get it unless you catch it in verse 29. When God is saying, wherefore, now look at this, chapter 2, verse 29. He's talking through the prophet to Eli. Watch the pronouns. Wherefore, kick I don't know how your Bible reads. I'm using King James. Wherefore kick you. He doesn't say they kick at my sacrifice. He's talking to Eli and he's implying that Eli does what? Eli is kicking at the sacrifices and at my offering, which I have commanded in my habitation. You honor your sons above me. Look at, watch the next phrase. You make who? He doesn't say your boys make themselves fat. What does he say? Yourself. You know what he's saying? What God is saying? Eli participated in it. Eli was somehow passively, actively involved in eating the food that was taken by the boys. The illegal, illicit food. And he made himself fat by it. By the way, I wonder, I don't know. But in chapter 4, remember, it points out again that Eli was what? as far as his body, right before he dies and he's in the chair and falls backwards, he's fat. It becomes a point in the text of his body size. This text says he made himself fat 
by eating all that fat? Well, he didn't take it, but he, he ate it. He didn't take it and force it, but he didn't stop his boys from doing it. And when his boys brought home the food, what did he do? He was a, he was a participant in it. God's holding him responsible, not only because he didn't stop his boys. Now, boys, you shouldn't be doing this, but, you know, it tastes rather good. You know, we shouldn't be, we shouldn't be, you know, we shouldn't be violating copyright, but it's kind of fun watching this movie. You know, we shouldn't be, you know, doing this, but, hey, since you brought it home, we might as well. So he is somehow involved with it, and God holds him accountable for it. In other words, kids, you shouldn't be watching impure stuff, but hey, what, uh, you know, it's interesting, I'll sit here and watch it with you. Or, or does it go this way? I don't want you kids to use certain words unless I'm using it with you. Then we have an adult conversation. You know, or it goes this way, okay? You know, I think church is really important. You kids should go to church until I find something better that I want to do. And then we, as a family, we can just do it. And I don't think it's going to impact your kids that badly. God has another story for it. God says, now wait a minute. You might be telling your kids something, but what are you doing? What are you living? This goes right back to that wholehearted devotion that this man is held accountable for. So you could look and go, oh, okay, 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 you know, we want to make sure that our kids are following the Lord and, you know, but the question comes back, what kind of example? What kind of example are we giving the kids? And again, I'm going to take you back to another, another Christian conference. 350 Christian businessmen in America are gathered at this conference. And they ask these Christian leaders this question. How many of you would say your father was a role model of what a Christian man should be? Out of that 350, only 30 said, raised their hand, and they said, my dad is a fairly good example. That's less than 10%. That's, that's incredible. Until, what would you do if I said, teens? How many of you would say your dad is a real good example? Would your dad say, hey, raise your hand. You know, give me a good plug here. What would be said? What would be said? See, we have a choice. We have a choice of attempting to do like an Elkanah and Hannah did, or by doing nothing, we become like Eli. And it's a scary thought. Here's, here's one man writing about his own family experience, and he writes about how he just doesn't understand his kids. I, I, I wanted you just to bore you to listen, though. I remember talking to my friend a number of years ago about our children. Mine were five and seven, just the ages when their daddy means everything to them. And I wish that I could have spent more time with my kids, but I was getting very busy. He goes on, he says, After all, I wanted to give them all the things I never had when I was growing up. I love the idea of coming home and having them sit on my lap and tell me about their day. But unfortunately, most days I came home so late that I was only able to kiss them goodnight after they had gone to sleep. It's amazing how fast the kids grow. Before I knew it, they were 9 and 11. I miss seeing them in school plays. Everyone said they were terrific. But the plays always seemed to go on when I was traveling for business or tied up at a special conference, and the kids never complained, but I could see the disappointment in their eyes. I kept promising that I would have more time next year. But the higher up the corporate ladder I climbed, the less time there seemed to be. 
Suddenly they were no longer 9 and 11. They were 14 and 16, teenagers. I didn't see my daughter the night she went out on her first date. I didn't see my son's basketball championship game. Mom made excuses, and I managed to telephone and talk to them before they left the house. But I could hear the disappointment in their voices. But I explained the best I could. Don't ask where all the years have gone. Those little kids are 19 and 21 now and in college. I can't believe it. My job is less demanding. I finally have time for them. But they have their own interests. And there's no time for me. To be perfectly honest, I'm a little hurt by the way my kids are treating me now. Yeah. The author goes on and says, he's hurt. How do you think his kids felt growing up during all those years? There's another man, and the fella is the author of this book. And he writes, and I think it is a classic statement as he writes about in this book, and he, he tells how this book got written. And here's what he writes. None of us choose our families or our fathers. But thanks to God's grace, in our lives, the three of us, my brothers and, and my two brothers and myself, we were given a dad who modeled masculinity and leadership and dedication to God. He wasn't perfect. He'll tell you that. He tended to be a little bit irritable and impatient when he was tired. But he showed us what it meant to be a genuine Christian man, a man who loved Jesus Christ, his wife, and his kids. He showed us how to do that. As far as I know, my dad never planned on writing a book to men about raising their boys for the Lord Jesus Christ. He was a real estate broker, still is, been doing it for over 40 years. Writing books is not his thing, but you should know something. He's the real author of this book. I just watched him and wrote down what he did. Could your kids say that about you? About you as mom and dad? Could they say that you are a model of what real dedication is? Hopefully they can. Do not fall into the trap that Eli did. You be the home that raises kids that make a difference. Father, help us. Help us not just to be hearers of your word, but help us to be doers. Help us to honor you by making sure that we raise kids the way you want us to. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for being here. Have a great night.